Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. My name is Brooke McCallery. And my name is Ben McCallery. And welcome to Season 5, Episode 2. We are going to do a deep dive into a theme that you're asked, oh, is this a top three theme? Yes. Is this a top one theme? <laughs> <laughs> this was probably... Yeah, this probably would be the it. most requested topic. Topic, yeah, for of this all season. Time. And yes, and for of all time, yeah. to be honest, it's the greatest of all time topic. You know what? I think that stems from the fact it's that the goatee. The, <laughs> what? The, go- the greatest goat. of all time topic, yeah. goatee. Good. Uh, I liked that more than you did. <laughs> so, you basically wrote a book on it, really. Oh. Uh, the first book. No, 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 no. Have you read my first book? <laughs> <laughs> it's a while ago. I, I'm confusing this with clutter. That's what I'm sort of confusing. Yeah. So yeah. the topic for today is stuff, our relationship to stuff. People were really curious about how it's changed over the years. And I think the reason people are so curious about that is because that's sort of how I started blogging. I started blogging by talking about that's minimalism. What I meant. And you started blogging talking yeah, about this yeah, stuff. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> I I spent years writing about decluttering and kind of documenting my own journey of decluttering and, and letting go of you know, twenty five thousand things from our house and talking about the benefits of that. So I think that people are really drawn to the idea of living more simply and more slowly through often this this funnel of decluttering. So on that note, let's get into it. So we're not going to rewind back to the beginning. No, Because we don't have four and a half hours to talk about this. <laughs> but let's just rewind back to this time last year basically getting back to Australia and I want to know how your relationship to stuff has changed since we've been back. A lot in surprising ways is my short answer. So we lived out of suitcases for 18 months and as you can imagine that has had an impact on our ideas and my ideas particularly of what feels necessary to live well and what doesn't. And I think living in a lot of different Airbnbs gave us a very unusual perspective on that because we had our stuff, you know, we had our four like duffel bag, big duffel bags, and that had all of our necessities in it. And then we would move every, sometimes every few days Mm. to someone else's idea of what was necessary. And we went through Airbnbs that had literally not a thing in the cupboard. Yes. Remember that place in Dallas? Dallas. It did not have a single... Shout out to Dallas. <laughs> Dallas is great. The Airbnb, not so much. But there was not a single, like, no utensils, no plates, no cutlery, nothing. It was just furniture and dog hair. <laughs> <laughs> I think that house was held together by dog fur, but anyway. Um, you know, and but then the opposite end of that, we'd stay in places that were kitted out with everything that had buttons, like everything that opened and closed. And it was so interesting to to kind of learn how to be flexible with that and, and to figure out what we really missed. So a good knife, oh. sharp knife. Airbnbs and knives, they just, 
There's not a sharp knife Mm-mm. in any Airbnb that no. I've ever stayed in. I think I'm going to start traveling with a knife sharpener. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. So yeah. it gave us an opportunity to to really miss things and things that we looked forward to having when we knew we would eventually settle back down. What was the house with the most amount of clutter when we were traveling? Oh, gosh. I know, and I'm just testing you. I'll give you a hint. Yes, please. South. Oh, my God. Yes. In Charleston. Charleston. <laughs> I love Charleston and it was a great house, but we walked in and it literally felt like the owner had just walked out and shut the door. Yeah, that's literally what it was. I mean, his prescription medication was still on the counter. His retainer was still on the counter. His clothes were still in the the wardrobe. Like it was like what Airbnb first started as, you know, like before it became this huge behemoth. Mm. It was, hey, come and stay in my house. I won't be here. That's what it felt like. It literally was, left two minutes before we walked in the door. Yeah. That's what it, it, yeah. It was, yeah. Uh, and it was a very full house, <laughs> full of massive, stuff massive. and ghosts. But anyway, that was definitely an interesting stay. Uh, so I think that, that that has shifted my perspective enormously. And when we got home and went through the, we had a small storage unit of maybe about 20 boxes and some furniture that we kept. We gave the vast majority of our stuff away before we left, but uh, it was really fun going through that stuff and trying to look back at past Ben and Brooke and why we would have kept some of it. You know, and at the time I remember packing away some of the stuff and I'm like, I actually don't know why I'm packing yeah. away this stuff. Maybe some of the stuff was that in that bad a condition that we felt we couldn't even we couldn't give, give it, it away. away. Yeah. I felt like that may have been because some of the stuff we unearthed, we were just like, what are we doing? <laughs> why? Like, what are we doing? Yeah. There was a bag full of bags, like bag full of shopping bags. There was plastic shopping bags. Yeah, which is strange because we didn't have plastic shopping bags, so I don't even know where they came it's from. It's just so strange. I, the kids kept weird things. Anyway, but the other the other side of that was that I wanted to teach the kids how to let go of stuff. I wanted them to have that experience because I think it's important for kids to grow up learning how to let go over time. And I knew that a lot of the things that they wanted to keep they wouldn't want when we got home or if we got home. And that was okay with me. I was happy to pay to store it. I was happy for them to then go through it and select the things that they wanted to keep mm. because there was boxes and boxes that they were happy to give away once yeah. we got home. And that, again, was really important. So, no, it wasn't a minimalist approach. It was a life lesson approach. Yeah. It was know? a necessity at the, at the time. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So what was some of the stuff that you were happy to have back? A few things, yeah. actually. Our record player. Yes. And our records, really happy to have that back. Yeah, it's hard to travel with a record player. It, it is. That's the truth. I think that... Books? Yeah, Your definitely books. my books. Yeah. De- and, and my cookbooks, actually. Hmm. And I know that I'm happy to have my cookbooks back because a box of them went missing and I haven't found it and I miss them. Hmm. So, yeah, books and cookbooks. Some of our kitchen utensils, really yep. good saucepan and frying pan and hmm. a knife, that sort of stuff I'm happy to have back. Uh, what else am I happy to have back? I'm happy to have back guitar. Yeah, you are happy to have back your guitar, yeah. All those big ticket items that you just but miss. Do you know doing. what's funny about And it's them? like hobby sort of stuff. Exactly. Isn't that funny? Like cookbooks, guitar, record. Like, yeah. like They're so all experiential. Yeah, and that, are. I think, has been my biggest learning and that has at least partly informed the things we have bought since we've settled back in is that the things that I missed and the things that I enjoy, art is the other one. Some, we had some beautiful pieces mm. of art and I am happy to have those back. Yep. But uh, they, they're they ex- either experiential or they add up 
to a fuller, more beautiful life. Yeah, nice. You know, yeah. I, there's clothes that I was happy to not ever see again. There's, I mean, we don't have many knickknacks or anything, but there's a handful of things that we got back. I'm like, yeah, fine. Mm. But it was those experiential items that um, were those meaningful or beautiful items that I really did miss. And that's what I think makes a space feel like home too. So what are the, some of the things that we've bought since we've been back? We had to buy, you and I needed to buy a bed. Mm. We didn't have a bed. So we bought a mattress and a bed frame. We've bought some bits and pieces of furniture. Aside from the bed, the thing that we decided to do was to live without them for a number of months before we committed to buying anything. And that has helped us to really rein in what is necessary and what we're looking for and what will work in that space. And it's given us time to find most of it secondhand or if not secondhand, then locally made. Because, you know, I've really shifted the way that I think about buying things and I'm much, much, much more intentional about it as a result. You and I have also bought bikes, Mm -hmm. as I mentioned last week, I think, uh, mountain bikes. So another experiential thing. You bought a guitar. Another one. I know. One electric, one acoustic. So, uh, you know, I think that's not locally made, I will say. It's not. (laughs) No, your, your guitar was not locally made. So I guess... In a word, I've become a little conflicted with buying things because the vast majority of stuff that we've bought is not a life necessity, but they do add up to either making a home that feels like a a haven, a sanctuary, Mm. um, or they make life more pleasurable. But I really am very conscious of the impact that every purchase has. Yeah. Way more conscious than I've ever been before. And just a point. Yesterday, we're looking at upgrading our computers because they're like five plus years old. So they're a bit of a risk in terms of what we do and they're not performing as well as they should be anymore. You know, it's just time to yeah, upgrade. Yeah, a six-year-old computer will do it's that. It's now time to upgrade your computer. And as much as we hate it, it's probably a smart thing to do. So looking at it and I'm online and I'm looking at new computers and then you came up with a genius idea, which I didn't even know existed mm that we both work off Macs, is they have refurbished Macs yep. bought through the Apple store that yep. you can buy. They're, they're officially refurbished. Re- and yet comes with warranty and Apple Care and all the rest of it. And yep. I'm just like, oh, my God, that's just so simple. And it's brilliant because it's not it's not a resource suck. Exactly. They, they already exist. The resources that went into those machines have already been mined. They've already been processed. Yeah. Uh, and we're not adding to the requirement of apple to continue to pull more out of the earth you know totally and i think that even just those sorts of shifts are like they're imperfect but they're a shift and they're important so i I think i've been thinking a lot about the life cycle of items before i buy them that is where they come from who made them were those people looked after were they paid well were they treated fairly Uh, how were the materials in this item farmed or mined or processed and then when I own the thing, how long will it last? Is it possible to repair it yes. a number of times? Can I repair it myself? Is there a way that I can locally get someone to help me repair it? Once it's finished its life as the thing that I've bought, can it be uh, repurposed? Can it be... Composted. Um, exactly, or recycled. Yeah. You know, and I, I really find myself thinking through all of these questions before I buy stuff. And then, of course, looking at buying secondhand where possible, and if not possible to buy secondhand, buying locally made 
So our bed's a good example. We bought a mattress that is made of natural latex and wool. Yes. And we did that very specifically because I believe it can be composted at the end of its life. Mattresses are a nightmare to get rid of. Mm. Like, I'm sure everyone knows that they oh, are an absolute sure. nightmare. There are there are places, um, there are companies, and there's one in Sydney that will take your old mattress away and break it down into various uh, elements that can be recycled and reused. But on the whole, getting rid of a mattress is really tough. And I wanted to see if we could find one that could be composted at the end of its life. And we did. And that was awesome. So that then spurred us on to look for bedding that could be same thing after hopefully 20 plus years of using it. Can it be, first of all, reused in some other form? And then when it's completely useless, can it be composted? So we've got wool um, you know, wool blankets and we've got linen sheets and things like that that, yes, cost more than oh, if we popped in to you know, the local Sheridan outlet and bought, uh, bought sheets there. If we did that, yes, it would cost less. But the quality, at least with what we've bought, the quality is really high and will last. It can be repaired and then the end of the life is not going to be another suck on the, the environment. So. And it's even better because it's the best mattress I've ever had in my life. It's the best. Yeah. I miss it when we go away. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so I think that that's sort of a, an insight into how my relationship with stuff and buying stuff has changed. We're not against buying things. I never mm. have been. I'm not a minimalist in that sense. And in fact, I don't think I'm a minimalist at all anymore. I don't really align myself with that philosophy necessarily because so much of what it's become is about aesthetics or it's about personal comfort and personal enjoyment. It's really moved at, away from the environmental and sustainable. Well, I don't think it ever actually was. Don't you? I, no, well, I just I feel found like at the very core of it, it was. Maybe, maybe. But there's always been an element of, well, if you don't need this thing right now, get rid of it. You can buy another one later if you need it. To me, that is the antithesis of the way I'm trying to live. So I remember talking to Erin Rhodes about it a couple of years ago. And I'm like, you know, do you feel like there is a a crossover between zero waste living and minimalism? She's like, maybe, but not for me, because I keep lots of things so that I can use them down the track. And I I really appreciate her saying that because it, it kind of gave me permission to say, well, yeah, I've got a drawer full of jars, but I'm going to use them. Or, yes, I've got a box full of fabric offcuts, but I'm going to use them. I think minimalism made me feel bad for having that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask a quick question? Yes. I know the answer. Okay. So you better get it right. (laughs) Looking at the net items that left our house Mm -hmm. when we gave things away before we moved, before we went overseas, just thinking about the amount of stuff that we got rid of. Yep. Compared to the amount of stuff we've brought back into our house, mm. and that includes the stuff that we lent people rather than giving it away when we first yeah. left, like a table, like art, all the rest of mm-hmm. it. What do you reckon the total sort of net is? Oh, we definitely still got rid of more. Yeah, but what have we brought back in as a percentage oh, of that total? Gosh. Like 20%, yeah. 25%? I don't think it's been much, yeah, honestly. It's about 25%. Yeah, I really, I, we're definitely way down on where we were. Yeah. Really should have calculated how much stuff we got rid of. Yeah. I mean, why? I, I feel like know. that's like an ego stroking thing. Yeah, baby. I get I get it. It would have been interesting, but I wasn't, wasn't going to count it. Were you? No. no. In that mindset when we were doing what we are doing, no Very chance. Very happy, happy no to, chance. to let things go. So, look, at the end of the day, it is hard. So what, what about the time where you just can't do the right thing? And can you think about something that you've bought where you've just gone, oh, 
like I needed it. I could, and we just can't go without it. Yeah, and oh, you yeah. had to buy it. What, sure. what would that have been? I mean, there's conundrums, isn't there? So, like, I can go through all of that that checklist of of all of the the values that I hold, and try and find a product that fits at least some of them. But at the end of the day, the secateurs, for example, I needed a good pair of garden secateurs because we've yes. got a big garden, and. I went to the hardware shop, tried to find a pair of secateurs that I could replace parts that had a lifetime warranty that was made in Australia and that was not packaged in plastic. Hmm. I got three out of the four of those, but then there was another pair that didn't have a lifetime warranty and you couldn't replace the parts, but it wasn't in plastic. So which one one do you choose? And I think you just do your best. Sometimes the constraint is financial. You know, maybe you can't afford. I certainly couldn't afford a two hundred and fifty dollars pair of secateurs. What do they exist? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, that's what I want for my birthday. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> You've already got some secateurs. I do, and they're going to last for a long time. So I chose the ones that had a much longer lifespan that I could replace parts as needed, but came in pin plastic. I had a number of conversations last season about this. You can't shoulder the blame and the burden of a system that is not set up for your success, hmm. you know? Yeah. So you do your best and you move on and you let go. And there's there's multiple examples of that probably every week. You know, I'm by no means zero waste. I'm by no means zero plastic in this house. I try my best and every week I try and make a positive change. It doesn't mean it's perfect. Hmm. doesn't mean it's even close to perfect. That's hmm. okay though because I think that if everyone tried to make a 10% improvement, That'd be a massive shift. If everyone tried then, after making 10% their new normal, made another 10% improvement, over a couple of years, you'll be shifting, you would have shifted the the impact that you're having and the choices that you're making significantly, you know? So I think that that's been important for me is to let go of finding the perfect thing all the time and just do as good as you can. Now, we spoke about it right at the top, decluttering. Yes. And your relationship to decluttering now because... It reaches a point where you're like, how much more can we actually declutter? How are you decluttering now? How do you go about decluttering? Slowly, mm-hmm. in a word. Yeah. Much more slowly than I used to. I was very, I was a fervent declutterer back in the day. And that's because I had so much to get rid of. And it was such a new experience for me and quite uncomfortable that I needed to maintain that momentum. I needed to play the minimalists game or I needed to count every item that left because that gave me momentum to keep going. I don't need that anymore, A, because we have less stuff, Um, but B, because I now, and I guess this is the flip side of the first half of our conversation, I now understand that there is an environmental cost to everything that we buy and similarly there is an environmental cost to everything that we let go of. And if I was doing it quick, like really quick, I would be sending everything in bags to the local Vinnies, probably 5 or 10% of which actually got sold the remainder which would have ended up in landfill. And I can't do that anymore. I just can't allow myself to do that. So uh, I'm much more considered and I'm actually quite enjoying it, to be honest. It's allowing me to be creative. It's allowing me to research what uh, recycling options there are around. And there's a lot. There's actually a lot more organisations getting involved in the circular economy. So for example, I think most rebel stores and converse stores in Australia now do a they have a program called reuse a shoe and it's a lot like the Nike program in the US and Europe where you can take your busted shoes to any Nike store any rebel store 
um, drop it in a big container, and they will then grind those shoes up. In, in front of you? <laughs> that would be cool. Would be cool. Um, but they grind them up in these these machines, and they use the material that's left, so all the foam and rubber, for various things. So sometimes it's put back into sporting equipment, um, you know, those big crash mats for gymnastics classes, flooring material, heaps of different things. So, no, it's not perfect, but it's an example of organizations trying to think creatively about how to deal with this waste problem. You know, so it's given me an opportunity to do a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I'm enjoying it. I think it has taken a bit of time, as I mentioned before, to let go of that minimalist guilt almost of, well, it's not very minimalist to have this box of clothes that I'm going to use in some capacity, um, you know, down the track, sitting in the shed. That's not minimalist. No, but it is intentional. Convenience. Yeah. Well, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And for me, both sides of this conversation hinge on the idea of convenience. Mm. In our house, for example, we don't have a dishwasher. We decided, and it's because there's no space for it in the kitchen, we decided not to buy it. Well, there one. is. We just choose not to have it, to be honest. Well, yeah, fine, technically. Uh, we don't. We decided not to buy a microwave. We live without the things that we think we need for months at a time just to see if we actually need them. And that is technically inconveniencing ourselves. It's not at all an inconvenience, but a lot of people would view it as an inconvenience because it's not the status quo. You, know, you and I have a recurring conversation about coffee maker. Oh, yes. See, we have an AeroPress and I love it. It, has, it makes a great coffee and usually it's just one or two cups being made a day. It doesn't bother me. I like the ritual of grinding up the beans. I like the ritual of like warming up the seal. I like the ritual of pouring the water and stirring and plunging. And it's slow. And I just want my coffee. And it's yeah, Exactly. And you keep pushing to have a coffee, a drip filter a drip, coffee. A drip filter coffee like we had over in Canada and America. And look, most of that, I'd say sort of 80% of that is tied up in the emotive <laughs> Uh, the nostalgia. Of, uh, the nostalgia of having that just reminds me of, you know, those mornings where I'd put a coffee on and look out and it's snow-capped mountains. But that's, not, uh, that's not where we are I, now. I, I understand that and it, and I just need to get past that mindset. But And I did. I do kind of like the sort of not as strong coffee through a drip filter. That's just the way I am. That's and fine. that's the only reason. Like I just think back at the nostalgia as aspect. That's sort of 80% and 20% because I just like that type of coffee. But I understand that we've got a perfectly, and, and it works, hand-pressed coffee thingo. AeroPress. AeroPress. And it's it's great. It does the job is, is my thinking. And why would we replace one perfectly functional little doodad it's not even a machine it's just like oh it's a hand pressed coffee yeah, machine yeah. uh with with something else that needs resources to go into it um second hand anyway okay fine we, we continue the conversation <laughs> i guess but so there's an inconvenience factor on in terms of the things that we choose not to own or choose to to be very intentional with buying but then there's also the inconvenience of decluttering ethically, I guess, and we need to prepare ourselves, or I needed to prepare myself, to be inconvenienced, to do the legwork, to research, to make the phone calls, to talk to your local council, to ensure that you're doing everything in your power to minimise the amount of stuff going to landfill, to make sure that the clothes that you're sending to the local charity shop are clothes that you would happily give a friend. Because if they're not, no one else is going to buy them and they're going to end up in landfill anyway. Yeah. You know, and I think you could view it as an inconvenience or you could view it the way I'm currently viewing it, which is 
as an opportunity to think creatively, to think outside the box. And it's fun. I'm, I'm quite enjoying it. Um, you know, and, and I guess to put a bow on it, for me, it's all been about letting go of, as I said, that minimalism guilt or the minimalism as an aesthetic and instead embrace intentionality with my choices and my actions, my actions. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I think it's a good place to have landed. It is. Now, the second part of this conversation, you have a catch up with your listener chat from episode two of mm-hmm. last season. And that is Nancy. It is. The lovely Nancy. I have found myself thinking about a lot over the last few months. So she, uh, you may remember, is an expat. She's living in um, Kuala Lumpur with her family and has really struggled with the desire for a slow, quiet life and the desire to be introverted. She's an introvert like me with the, the potential for loneliness. You know, like, does slow living stop me from making friends kind of question. And it's interesting. I found myself writing quite a bit about this in my book that I'm working on, partly really inspired by by Nancy's initial conversation, but also this conversation that I'm about to share with you because she has done so much work mm. to really look deep within herself and figure out where these these feelings and this hesitancy to connect with people has come from. And it's such a great conversation. Such a such an awesome conversation. Head over to slowyourhome.com slash season five for the show notes for this episode and enjoy the chat. Nancy, hello, how are you? Hello, I'm really good, thank you. Uh, it's so so lovely to talk to you after our, our chat a few months ago. I know, it's, been, it's lovely catching up. It feels like it's been yesterday and also a really long time ago at the same time. It does, it does. I mean, before we hit record, you and I had a conversation about time and, you know, slowing it down and speeding it up, but it, that's exactly how it feels. I, I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of time reflecting on... Um, my relationships and developing connections with people after I, I spoke to you. And I know that a lot of people who listen to the podcast did too, because I've gotten a lot of feedback from people who related so much to you and where you're at in terms of being an introvert and enjoying your own company and enjoying like the, the slow living philosophy, but being concerned that maybe it's it's adding to your to, to loneliness, like the sense of loneliness that you get. Uh, so I just wanted to thank you for being so honest and to open up that conversation because I think it's really important. No, thank you. It was it was one of those things where even though I'd sent the email and I'd thought about it then, I reflected a lot on it afterwards. And I realised, and I think I was already aware, that my loneliness wasn't related to me moving or anything like that, although that can be an isolating experience. But the, the times that I'd felt most lonely through my life had nothing to do with where I was. It was more about what stage of life I was at or changes. My most lonely time was when I was a new mum in my hometown and I had everyone I'd ever known still around me within three miles of me. And yet I felt lonely because I was in this new stage of life. And then I've had times where I've moved location as well. And that breeds a different type of loneliness, but it's still just as potent. And I think the problem where that coincides with slow living is slow living gives you this 
lovely alternative that's always there so that you can kind of close yourself off further and you're happy and you can make yourself cozy and you can make yourself tea or whatever it is that your slow living looks like and it can stop you getting out of that loneliness funk that you're essentially in, no matter what's brought it on. Exactly. And that's, I think, what was so important about our conversation. I don't think I'd ever articulated it as well as you did. The potential for slow living to be used as a crutch, I guess, um, in avoiding connection. And for me, it's not something that I ever really recognised as an issue Uh, Because I enjoy my own company, I thrive in my own company, uh, and I really like the opportunity to have quiet, creative time. It's not until you you hit a a wall or a moment or a point in time, for us it was when we moved, that I realized it had harmed my relationships in a a lot of ways. So I, you know, I'm still kind of processing all of that, but I think it's such such an important thing to to recognize that slow living is a tool not a crutch I think it kind of goes both ways because like we talked last time about being introverted and I think that is important to recognize but it is also equally important to recognize that it is proven you need to have that social world around you some form of community and again that isn't prescriptive it can be whatever you think your your community needs to be online, offline, large, small, friends, family. But there is this way that you can use slow living to to stop yourself interacting. And I actually received a strange bit of feedback from someone who'd listened to the podcast, who I know, and I said, like, listen to this podcast. And they said, when you talk about not being able to get back to in touch with people or don't worry about getting in contact with people for a long time, aren't you really just talking about being a bad friend? And I thought it was that kind of rolled around in my head for a couple of days because I was like, where, where, I think there's a blurred line there because mm. I think friends don't require you to be 24-7 available at their beck and call and they respect your personal space. But at the same time, where do you draw these lines that say, actually, you know, I couldn't speak to you for the last eight months and it was because I had other stuff going on. Where's the value in that? And that's what that friend heard. And I, and, I, and it's one of those things where I just think it's a balancing act. It's between the, the being available and also having that time to yourself where you need to process and you need to deal with stuff. And it's different for everyone. And trying to get on the same page with those ideas is is another challenge that... Um, it feels like it's all challenges sometimes but it's just a challenge where you need to kind of manage expectations when you might not have the energy but you sometimes do need to manage expectations I think that that's a very important uh, thing to to recognize and not that that friendships maybe uh, can be incompatible if you've got someone who expects 24-7 connectivity and someone who is happy with like a six-week response time you know (laughs) Because you can't change anyone else, you know, you can't, you cannot force change in in anyone else and you can't force change in what they want from you either, I guess. But, you know, if, if that's something that you, you feel is potentially at play, you know, maybe I am just kind of leaning back on this because I feel like I can. Putting in place some sort of boundary or some sort of tool that will help you manage that, that tension, you know, like, yes, like I'm really not in the headspace to have a 30 minute phone call with you right now, but what can I do to remind myself to get back to you within, you know, 24 hours or by the end of the day? Um, and I don't know what that is, but whether or not you can just jot a note down and and say, text so-and-so or, 
you know, calendarize. I've got friends who will calendarize a catch up. They will put in their calendar, call Brooke every six months and then they stick to it, you know. And I think that maybe using some tools and some experimenting with some ideas of how to mitigate that the gap between slow living and bad friend is yeah. is something to to explore. Well, with with some of my friends um, um, that I don't get to see very often, we tend to unload quite a large essay style <laughs> message to each other sometimes, and we we I think are queens of sending each other sometimes a quick response and saying, "I've just read your message. I really want to send you a big one back, but I don't have." the ability right now I don't have the time or whatever and and just saying but I just wanted to say that sucks or you know (laughs) like oh congratulations that happened and so you can kind of acknowledge but also acknowledge that you've heard them but that you 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 haven't got the capacity at that time to message but you 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 kind of validate that you've heard from them if you know what I mean it's and we do that quite a lot which I find quite useful and but I I think it is strange when you have to manage other people's expectations of instant responses and I think that if you're reasonable you know and I am I I probably manage reasonable half the time (laughs) in terms of my replies. Uh, If you're reasonable in that, and I think that you you don't need to carry around other people's expectations of, you know, 30-second responses. I just, if that's their MO, that's fine. But you you don't need to to mould yourself into someone who will fit their agenda. For me, there's probably a bit of stubbornness at play too. You know, if someone's in my inbox or if they're texting me and I'm, like I'm away, I'm doing other things. I'm in the garden. I'm hanging out with my family. I'm on a bushwalk. I I stubbornly refuse to dip into their agenda for that moment, unless it's an emergency or something, of course. But yeah, because yeah. I'm doing something else. So just getting in my space doesn't necessarily mean that you get a a piece of my time right now. No, you know. And I think that that is definitely stubborn. But I also think that that's a boundary that I've created. I don't necessarily know that I communicate it, and maybe that's the that's the disconnect, not communicating that boundary. Uh, but we need to be more aware of the fact that just because we send a message out into someone else's space doesn't mean we deserve a response. Exactly. Like if you had to go around someone's house and knock on their door, you wouldn't like you wouldn't be doing it at their window at, at dinner time, going hello, hello. I need I need you to read this or do this or me acknowledge me um you it's just not done but there's something about online where I think it there is a danger that people feel like oh I sent that whatsapp message oh I can see that it's gone blue oh yeah you know this idea that you have got the capacity to to do things straight away and I find personally that I just have to turn off if I know there's a message waiting for me I feel like I can't ignore it and things so I just turn my phone off because then I won't know that there's a message waiting for me and you can deal with it later definitely yeah now um did you get a chance to listen back to our episode and then my conversation with Kate yeah I thought it was really good because straight after the conversation the first thing that kept ringing in my ears was your question about what I feel proud of. It's a doozy. <laughs> I must have had it rolling around my head for like a quite a few de- number of days and it, it branched off into lots of different things. What do I feel proud of? And there was an element of at first taking it down to smaller things like what do I feel proud of? And I tried to make a list in, in my bullet journal that I keep and I thought about kind of aspects of my personality I tried to make it not about other people not about being a mum even though I am proud of that but everything that I could list for you was based on someone else and nothing about myself and so I tried to think about what I'm proud of and I I, I thought about my outlook and that I'm really really good 
taking in something negative and putting it into a positive spin on it things like things like that so all of these aspects and taking things down to the small made me uh, have like a small list but it kind of evolved because I think you noticed during the conversation that there was a lot of the isolation that I was feeling was coming from a place of self-esteem being low being off however you want to look at it and I did a really random small thing in the kitchen (laughs) I made some hummus and that sounds so strange so I need to put this in context I do cook quite a lot okay so I'm a home cook you know I can knock out some really top-notch meals and I enjoy doing it and normally the one thing that I don't bother to make myself is some hummus because I can buy it it's really simple it's tasty it, it seems a faff that I don't have to deal with and recently I haven't been able to get hold of it so easily in KL or at least a good one anyway and so I decided to make some And just by doing this really, really small act of doing something new, of something novel that I've never done before, I can't explain the boost in my self-esteem that it actually gave me. We live in a really, really nice little community and there's a community space in our back garden. And I have to say that I had taken to, before I take the kids outside to play in the playground or play in the pool, I look outside my bedroom window to see who's out there, to see if I can face taking them outside. And I literally made this hummus and felt so, "Mm, I can do anything. The kids wanted to go straight outside after I put it in a piece of Tupperware and I just walked straight outside. And it sounds so stupid and so minimal, but it really, really stuck with me. This small, small act of just doing something that I hadn't done before, of doing something for me, of doing something that made me feel like I'd got some something to offer it sounds so silly but it really really changed how I acted for the rest of that day and that then had a knock-on effect with other things that I was doing because it made me realize that there was such a a self-esteem problem and I started to look into that more one of your best pieces of advice was that go to a coffee shop, just go and take up some space. It made me realise that I'm a human in the world again and that I'm not just functioning for my family. And so I felt like a human. I interacted with people and I, I do it, but I don't do it mindfully. Like I do have all of those small interactions that um, Kate Flanders talks about. And I think I'm always polite and always open, but I never actually just take up some space. I'm always just that passing, hi, how's everything? Oh, good, yep, see you later. To actually sit in a space and occupy it had a huge effect on my self-esteem and my feeling in the world. Just that act of making hummus made me realise that I needed to be more in control of the things I was doing. And then when I was more in control, it made me realise I'd given up so much of myself to this role as a parent and a wife, there were certain things like putting up a picture. I wouldn't put up a picture because I think, oh, that's that's my husband. He likes to do that. And it's Simon's job. And actually, I just thought I always used to do it. So I'm just going to do it, you know, and it just made me feel much more in control about the things that I was doing. It made me feel like uh, like I am taking part in the world again, which is so, so strange from such a little little thought in the conversation. I think that there is something really powerful in those tiny little things. When we, we when we talk about changing the way we live or when we talk about creating, you know, a healthier self-esteem or we talk we always think 
big, you know, because self-esteem sort of comes from doing esteemable things, you know, like when I hear that, I think volunteering for, you know, 10 hours a week at a, at a charitable organization or something like that, something really valuable, like externally valuable. Yeah, like literally stopped and gave CPR to someone who right. collapsed on the street. And you're like, yeah, I feel good about myself. I saved someone's life. Exactly. And- you know, but I think that the tiny acts of a doing something new um, it, are so important, but also b just trying something and 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 then having the the presence to say hey go me like that's a new thing that I've done that's fantastic moving on but you move on with this elevated um sense of of self I love what you said about going out to a coffee shop taking up space as a human you are allowed to take up space you know and I think that even acknowledging that must be such a boost for your, your self-esteem and the way that you view yourself in the world because suddenly you're not someone who kind of moves through the world um, almost apologetically only to get to the end and at the end of the day and sort of feel empty about those interactions. You're, you're putting yourself out in the world and you're paying attention to the people you come across and you're looking people in the eye and that's a totally different thing. As you say, that might feel really insignificant but I think that's actually kind of the heart of it. The heart yeah. of, of existing in the world and, and living in the world is to acknowledge and allow yourself to take up space. When you are in that dangerously lonely place, like I said, when I was a new mum, when I was in my hometown, the, apart from my partner, um, my main interaction probably of the week was the cashier at the supermarket. And I do think there is an element of it being dangerous that you that you kind of look at that and think this is this is so valuable to me, that's enough. Because I do think that there is an element of keep pushing forward. You've got to keep going. When you are in those lonely places, when you are that isolated, it's great, get out. But there is a different element to that taking up space. Don't just settle for someone, you know, acknowledging you, oh, have a nice day. That's not enough. Your introversion, that's important. But there is this thing of you have to get uncomfortable as well. You need to do those new things, those uncomfortable things, especially when it's meeting people and you are introverted like me. It is so awful, but it is so important. Yeah, yeah. I think the awkwardness and the discomfort of ex- expanding yourself beyond your comfort zone, that's where growth happens, first of all. And I also think keep in mind there are rewards on the on the outside of our comfort zone. It may not come immediately. It may not come in the way that you expect. But expanding ourselves and allowing ourselves to not kind of let happiness or contentment become a an armor that we wear, you know, that, that stops us from growing. I think for me, that's where the like the seed of of loneliness probably was planted in that I'm fine. I don't want to expand because that's uncomfortable and awkward and potentially vulnerable. And, you know, what if they don't like me or what if I'm nice to someone and they're rude to me? And But on the flip side of that, what if you connect with someone? What if you are seen? What if someone makes eye contact with you and is interested in you and asks you questions and you find yourself interacting with them? Like that's an expansion of self. And I think that that is so important to, as you say, not let, you know, contentment become the enemy of, of 
connection, I guess. Yeah, because that that is like the the main problem that I had with the slow living movement. Just so easy. It's so accepting. It's so easy to fall into those patterns. When I heard you and Kate talking about how when you go into social situations, it's not easy for you either. Like you 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 hang by the wall. You look for people, and it just made me realise that even people like you and Kate, who I respect a lot, it's not easy for you guys either. It, it's getting into getting out of that mindset of letting the anticipation and the experience of something stop you from doing it, because really the importance is in the remembering it. Doing the hard things, I think, is a really important takeaway. You will be grateful that present you is being brave. The future you will be so glad that you did. Maybe that's part of the conversation with slow living that gets left out. It's not all bliss and Zen and, you know, meditation and sound baths. And like, it's not that anyway, but it's, no. it's definitely not all that. It's uncomfortable asking yourself the big questions, putting yourself out there. And I think the esteem, the self-esteem, the, the shift in your perception of yourself that comes after that. I mean, I've never regretted any of those, those choices to do the hard things. Uh, maybe the result isn't what I expected, but that's okay, you know, to be able to step back and say, hey, I did it. I tried. Yeah. There is times where I think it, it is a little bit of a battle. And I think if there's anyone like in the trenches of it, and sometimes those like, those trenches last for years, especially when you are in motherhood and things, you living slowly or living isolated can sometimes be easy because you can just get into your own little rhythm and I respect that, but I do think getting uncomfortable, like you say, your future self will thank you for it, that you just need to go, do you know what, today I'm putting on my big girl pants and I'm going to go to that play group or that coffee morning or hell, just go to a coffee shop and just get out. Yeah. And it's so easy for me to stay in every single day, but I just realised it, it's not something that's ever going to come naturally. It isn't so much, I don't want to think of it as a battle every single time I do it. I kind of want to remind myself that it, it's never going to come easy. It's never going to be my second nature, but it's so worth it if you just get on and do it anyway. Yeah. Back when I was in the worst of my postnatal depression, so I had a, you know, a, a two-year-old, a, maybe a three- or four-month-old baby, and for me the idea of going to a playgroup genuinely gave me anxiety attacks. Like, so that was when I did things like, um, you know, developed rhythms at home that gave me the flexibility um, to actually enjoy spending time with my kids and go for a walk and to just put myself in, you know, in the external world in the most gentle way I could do or to call my sister and say, can I come and have a coffee, you know, and just sit in the presence of her and her family and feel seen. And that was kind of as much as I could manage. And it was interesting, I think, that once, you know, I had begun to recover from the, the postnatal depression and, and built my mental health back a little, I think I probably stayed in that pattern of behavior longer than I needed to, because mm -hmm. it was then that moment where I realized, damn, I'm really lonely. That that was probably the the knock on the head that I realized that, that I needed to recognize that actually now it's the time to take another step out. Um, now, you mentioned homework. The homework yeah. tasks that I set you. How did you go? Going to the coffee shop was probably the most powerful one. Yeah. Um, in terms of the groups and things. Yeah. I'm now a uh, parent rep at my kids' school, so I have to go into all of their um, voluntary activities, and that involves actually really strangely welcoming new people who might feel a bit isolated. So. Oh wow. 
it's really strange. There was little things as well, like um, just the openness and things. When we had Halloween here, the kids um, go around our little community all together. And there's this mum who's got a child who's a little bit younger than mine. But I just, for some reason, I, I'd spoken to her a few times out in the community space that we share. and But we don't see each other very often. And actually, we were all out there for Halloween. And I did something crazy where I just said, hey, you know, I know it's late, but the kids are probably really excited. Do you want to come in and have a drink and things? And it was actually really, really lovely to take a chance and say, come into my house. And the kids stayed up like until gone nine o'clock, which is not normal. (laughs) We were all exhausted, but it was really, really nice to kind of say, let's take a chance and let's be open to this idea of a new connection. And so now um, like we see each other a lot more and we message each other directly a lot more. And so it it was just taking that chance and doing something. I'm proud of you because I know that as I feel like we're kind of on similar pages in terms of the way we operate in the world, that can be scary. I found myself asking a woman who I have met um, in our new town, cross paths a lot of times and I really like her a lot but same thing last week I'm like we had a quick chat you know in line at the coffee shop and I said look do you want to sit down and have a coffee one day next week she's like yeah absolutely I'm like oh thank god (laughs) (laughs) that eight seconds of bravery really paid off you know but it's just sometimes putting yourself out there and I think it's a, a process to get there I feel like if you're super isolated if you're really struggling to be in the world at the moment kind of going out there and asking someone out to have a meal with you or to to have a coffee might feel undoable but putting yourself out in that space and that's what I've done as well sort of just spending time in the coffee shop, like the local coffee shop and asking people questions and just saying good morning to people that I see time and time again. And it's a gradual process of building up your um, your ability to take up space to a point where that didn't feel so terrifying as maybe it would have six months ago. It does come at small, small increments because had I not done the realisation of how, how low my self-esteem was and trying to work on that, I don't think I would have been felt so comfortable as to say, hey, strange person who I cross paths with, come and have like have a drink and have a snack and let the kids play. And it it did. It was it was so worth it. And there are a few other situations where we've done that type of thing where we said, let's just see how it works out. And I think your advice of letting go of the expectations was probably again really, really good because instead of expecting things where you could go to those social events and hope that you'd meet some people and you'd have some interesting conversation, let go of that. Exactly. And, you know, some of my my best friendships have not started out well. They've had inauspicious (laughs) beginnings, you know. And I think that's important to understand too. Like um, Jackie Carr, who I've had on the podcast a couple of times, and Mary Beth, her friend, uh, her best friend, they really clashed the first few times. And Jackie often talks about how, you know, she met she met Mary Beth and she was really kind of envious of her because she's this glamorous, you know, yoga teacher and um, really kind of let that get in the way of her. And she's like, this is not going to be a friend of mine. And her husband, they, their husbands kind of kept pushing. They're like, I think you guys would really get along. And it took three or four times um, of, of sitting in that awkward clashing sort yeah. of space to then recognise actually – you know, and now they're they're best mates. So I think that letting go of those expectations and just letting things be is really a, a really healthy way to approach those those new kind of experiences and those those new people. We know that we are these multifaceted different people. And sometimes 
we in the moment forget that other people are as well. So I, I kind of feel strange because I'm quite chilled out and relaxed and really, really uh, like down to earth, I would say. But then there are times when I want to wear green eyeliner and shiny um, makeup. And I worry that if I do that, that other people are going to assume that I'm that type of person. But I'm not. I'm I'm a normal person. And so I think there's sometimes this idea that you overthink about the, the image that you give off and also that other people give off as well. You might meet this high-maintenance, amazing yoga teacher, but actually that person is just as down-to-earth as you and she's as multifaceted as you. It's worth just delving that bit deeper sometimes. Exactly. And for me, that's one of the biggest and most important payoffs of uh, kind of encouraging myself to connect with people more often in really small ways as well, just of existing and living and, and taking up space in the world. It allows me, I think, to be more present in even those transactional interactions with people. The flow and effect of that is to recognize them as someone else who is taking up space in the world. And for them, I am a mere blip in their day. And I think that's really important for us as egocentric beings to recognize that we are very, very minute in the scale of importance in their day because behind the facade of, of what they're doing in the capacity that you see them, they've got their own stresses. They're worrying about paying the rent. They've Maybe they've had an argument with their partner. Maybe they realise that they haven't called their mum for two weeks. Like There's lots going on and we are not really uh, a significant part of that. And rather than finding that to be, you know, something off-putting, I really love that because I feel like all of a sudden I'm part of something bigger you know, and, and that's important to me. The biggest thing I've done is I've just tried new things. I think just getting out of that comfort zone, getting out. And I, you know, both you and Kate mentioned like online groups and things I've, I've been going online a bit more. I still want to keep my usage of that quite small, but I've, you know, I've taken part in community forums. I've posted a few things. And I guess in a way, a bit like the hummus making, just trying those new things, trying those novel things. They're, they're rewarding and they're rewarding more than they should be. They, they, they actually have reverberations throughout the different areas of your life. And it is, I think it is just the act of trying things and getting uncomfortable and doing something you've never done before. Well, you're the person who, you know, I am the person who shows up to these. I'm the person who has invited my neighbour in for a drink. I'm the person who, you know, and when you were talking about um, using online tools to connect with people, I think maybe the difference that you're experiencing also is that you're showing up with intention. You know, you're not just spending two and a half hours scrolling Instagram every day, looking for some kind, like waiting for someone to DM you or waiting for some kind of ping of connection. You're in there, you're posting, you're connecting with people in a very intentional way. And I, that's a totally different experience. For me, that is using tech as a tool to connect. And I know, I think that the fact that you have already said that you you want to keep your usage of, of tech manageable means that you will. You know, you'll set up those boundaries, you set up a screen time. The online forums are useful, but the main, the main things I take away are like the real world, because that's what I wanted. Like this idea that I talk to people that I, because... I'm not talking about just the hellos and nods to neighbours and things. I didn't talk to people enough. I didn't have them around me. And so just trying to cultivate that, I guess the whole process has reminded me that I'm not as bad as I thought I was at doing it. Everyone has these struggles. It's not just me. Exactly. It's it's not even where I am. It's not anything to do with that. I'm incredibly proud of where you've... (laughs) like started and and where you've come to you know I think and I hope you are too 
because I think that it's testament to our need to connect, first of all, but also to the power of taking small steps and, you know, reducing expectations and, and just going in with a, hey, let's see what happens if sort of approach. And that's light and it's curious and it's playful rather than heavy and, you know, mired in the, the need for this to be perfect and for them to like me and all, all that kind of stuff. That's just heavy. So yeah. what you've done is is kind of take broader lightness to all those interactions. And, I mean, look where it's taken you. I know. And I can make hummus really exactly. well. <laughs> exactly. This is, the, this is what I was getting at. It's the hummus. It's always been about the hummus. It's the hummus. Who knew? Like, I guess, like, you know, once you've done that, that's it. You're sorted. All right. So everyone's homework is to make some hummus. Make some hummus. Yep. <laughs> Nancy, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. No, it has. It's been an absolutely brilliant experience. It genuinely has had an effect. Thank you. Who is that? Hi, podcast.